My name is Dion Moses. I am a black woman. I am a dog lover. I'm a veteran. I'm an artist. I'm a curator. Um, I'm an activist. Um, yeah. Okay. I did not know you were a veteran. Did which branch did you serve in? I was in the army. I really? served for seven years um, as a broadcast journalist for the military. I lived in Korea for what seven uh, three years. Um, yeah, and I worked at the Pentagon for two years as the bureau chief before Ooh. I got out. Wow. Okay. We're definitely going to have to talk about that. I've lived several lives. <laughs> I don't know how I didn't find that in my research, but I definitely like to talk about that because for a while when, because I, I tried to join the military um, and when I tried to join the Navy and the Air Force, both times I was like, I want that broadcasting job because that's what I really want to do and the military would help. But then I got into a car accident and broke my ankle. So uh -huh. I think the universe was just like, military is not for you. And Looking back, it was probably the best because um, I, I am one of those people that has like the whole problem with authority thing, especially if I don't like you. I did too. Um, yeah, I, the military changed my life for real. Um, it really did. It made me um, very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Driven, um, but also, um, I don't know, what was the word? Like I, was, I wasn't very disciplined. That's what it made me do. It helped, it helped me get disciplined and like getting up in the morning and making your bed and you know just handling your business um i was not doing that when i was younger i <laughs> uh, gotcha okay so we'll definitely talk about the military a little bit more let's talk about you though where are you from what was growing up like um i grew up in woodbridge virginia i was born in arlington virginia but i grew up in woodbridge virginia part of the dmv dc metro area um i have a brother who's older than me um, about two years and i had grew up with a lot of dogs um my parents um were married, but they divorced when I was in elementary school. Um, the community that we lived in in Woodbridge, it was like the suburbs. Um, and it uh, was very diverse, actually. Um, I think my community, like next to my street, there's a lot of everybody was there. We had um, everyone from every, every ethnicity that you could think of, every religion, every color, every creed. But it was like when I think about school, um, school was actually kind of segregated. And I used to think that we did that to ourselves. But I see now that, you know, that was definitely set up. I remember how the lockers were set up um, and when most of the black students of color were downstairs um, thinking about even like sports, you know, um, but we could talk more about that later. I was also very active in sports, very talkative. I was a storyteller. I was very inquisitive. I love, love school. Um, I just loved, I love to read. I love to research and I loved art, um, but I was never really nurtured in art. You know, we were always encouraged to entertain or, um, you know, do sports. So that's kind of like what I stuck to outside of, you know, my, my studies. Um, my mom was really religious, um, went to church a lot. But when I think about what I did and didn't learn, you know, as a child, um, my, my childhood growing up was not centered around blackness, kind of like what my life, what, what I, who I am now, I did not um, know who I was at all. Um, I think that might be because my mother immigrated from, you know, um, uh, the islands, from the West Indies, Dominica. And I think she really wanted to assimilate into like American culture. My father, he's from um, Indiana. I just think that maybe the baby boomer gen generation, um, they might have left that, like my learning for me personally, left it up to school. And I think that played a big part in like who I was and like being raised in that European Western canon. Um, it really affected me growing up um, and I, not me not knowing who I was. So, I mean, that's kind of who, who I was growing up. Um, I was definitely like, I felt honestly, when I think about it now, like a lost child, 
Mm-hmm. Um, but um, my childhood was, I had a great childhood growing up. We played outside. I had a lot of friends. Um, but um, yeah, I definitely did not know who I was um, as a black woman or black child growing up. But it's weird because like I felt and I sensed those things, like things happened to me, but you know, it was never put together two and two to me. It was just like, that's just how I was. And um, I knew it was because I was black, but it was never like really explicitly said. It was a weird, I don't know, I, I can't explain. It. it was like things weren't talked about. You know what I mean? It does make a lot of sense because in a certain regard, that was kind of my uh, upbringing as well. And as far as you talking about like events that happened where you're just like, like, did that actually happen? Or did yeah. I it? And then as you get like right. a little older or the further you away, you, the further away you get from the situation, you're just like, yeah, that did happen, but like it, it, it just seemed it like all happened so fast and just seemed so surreal that like I, I didn't really mm-hmm. uh, understand. I, yeah, I remember like teachers treating us. I just remember like me knowing like, oh, not to ask this teacher because I know she's not going to help. She doesn't help us, but she'll help them. Like you know what I mean? And they were just kind of like she's just mean. Like that's just who she is. Like you know, I just accepted it. Um, but it was never really like like that's racism. Like you know, she's. Um, you know, it was a microaggression, but not really, it's a macroaggression for me, you know, for a child. So there's just things that happen in school that, um, you know, like I, I remember always asking, I was always that kid that asked, like, are there any black, you know, this and that? And they would literally just say no. I remember a couple of times I've looked things up and, you know, um, found out things, but it was never really like, and I brought it to school, but it was like, we weren't going to talk about it, just skipped over, you know? Yeah. So I kind of just, learned and researched what they told me to you know I just didn't I just chose not to look any further yeah of course and as a child unless you explicitly have that burning desire and it sounds like you did as you got older uh, yeah a child is just gonna like you said like do what they're told or just kind of go with the flow because in their mind they're like well that's what the grown-up said so you know I might as well just do that right right um, exactly two follow-up questions mm-hmm. First, are you older or younger than your brother? And then second, do you feel like your brother also had that experience of not really being raised in a uh, like a, a realm of blackness? I'm younger than my brother. I think my brother was raised in the same. Mm, I can't say that. I don't know. We can ask him. He's in the other room. But I think my brother was, he was always more woke than me. Like he understood what was going on around. He would say like, you know, white kids doing this, white kids doing that, you know, but I would just like, you know, they're just mean or this. I was just talking to their character, like, you know, just as a person. But like, I, I did know it's like, that's weird. It's like, you know, you know, something's like off, you know, it's not right. It's not wrong, but you don't speak it. You don't say it. I don't know. I felt like maybe I was protecting something. I don't know. It was weird protecting myself, protecting others. I don't know, but it was something I cannot, I cannot explain it. It's like, I knew something, but I, it was never spoken. And it was like, things would happen. I would see things happen, like microaggressions towards like my parents. Like I would, I would remember seeing things as a kid or hearing things like maybe like a white person, you know, try to sun your parents a little bit, like, you know, being smart. Like we had next door neighbors, which who I knew were racist. Um, I remember when they're, as a child, when they're, when they had family in town, we weren't allowed to come over, you know? And it was just kind of like, oh, the house is, is full. But really it was because their uncle was really racist and he didn't, you know, didn't like us and my parents was and our parents knew so it was like you know don't go over there because you know he might say something off-putting or whatever to you guys and I'm pretty sure it's a couple of times he did but I didn't know what you know what was going on or whatever so yeah I don't know I, I think but I think my brother I think my brother's always known um but I don't know we just didn't talk about things like that it's interesting that you uh 
talk about that because uh, the the last person that I interviewed, uh, Joyelle Arvea, um, she talked about you know a similar experience with her family, and I I'm going to ask you what I asked her uh, as you got older and you kind of realized that you weren't raised in that blackness. Uh, did you come to be angry or resent your parents for what they did? Yeah, I did, actually. I felt like everyone knew more than me or knew what was going on more than me. And I felt like I was, you know, people like saying, like, you know, you're acting white or whatever. I thought that that was me. Like, I was like, what's why? Like, why? Why don't I understand, like, who I am as a black person? And so I, I was angry. And I remember my mom, she's from the Caribbean. She, she speaks. She's from Dominica. She speaks Patois, broken French. So I wanted to I asked her tons of times to teach me the language. And, you know, I wanted to know more, but she just did it. I think that drove me to going into research more and actually attending an HBCU after I graduated from high school. I went to Virginia State University and I was so excited to go there. And honestly, I based my black experience or what my black experience is going to be like based on the Cosby show. I mean, not the Cosby show, but um, um, uh, a different world, yeah, you know? World, uh-huh. Yeah. And when I got there, I'm going to be honest with you. When I got there, it wasn't like that. It was a lot of wet t-shirt contests. It was almost like spring bling. And yeah. I was just like, I was like, all right, so this is what we doing. We, we partying. So like, yeah, I went to classes a couple of times. There were other things, but like, like I said, like, I feel like I wasn't rooted in like black culture to appreciate what was going on around me. Not the wet t-shirt contest, but like sororities and fraternities or like the, the step when they're stepping on the, on the line and when we're in the yard, you know, I would just, for me, it was like, it became like a big party and I'm not going to lie. I really like, and then, um, I went to school and then I just, honestly, I just party. Partly one, because I didn't want to break from school. I mean, 12 years. I don't know if anybody else considers this, but if you think about it, we did 14 years. I did two years of preschool. I feel like I did like 14 years. I wanted one break to like, you know, live my life, maybe work a little bit and then go to college. But my parents really wanted me to go to college directly after after high school. The experience that I was basing it off of was off TV and probably whatever the Western canon white people told me it was, you know, and um and that's when I went in there. So I didn't have a good time. I didn't appreciate it. I made, I didn't, I do have a lot of friends that I still talk to to today, but I ended up dropping out of um, college um, my first year, totally flunking out. But I just basically decided not to continue um, because I was like, this isn't for me. Um, I didn't know. I was like, I, I was like, maybe I was like the black experience. Like, what is the black experience? Like, what am I doing here? And I just felt like I needed to like learn more. Um, and honestly, like I got into some trouble when I was in college. <laughs> I got into trouble when I was in college. Um, so my parents were like, you know, come back home and like, let's see if we can get you straight. And my dad suggested I join the military. And then um, that's the kind of funny story about how I got became a broadcast journalist. Um, but if you want to talk more about that, about HBC, HBCUs, then we can, I can go back to the military thing. It doesn't seem like art was a large part of your family history or your family growing up, but was activism. Well, actually... All art and art was a part of my um, of me growing up in a sense. Um, my dad's okay. side of the thing is actually very um, very artistic. Um, oh. have a, are very creative. My auntie, my aunts, they had um, like what do you call it? Like a ceramics business. Mm-hmm. Um, they like made like black ceramics. You know how you sell those the praying babies and stuff like that. And um, <laughs> she would she would make them and she would paint them. And she had a whole shop in Gary, Indiana. That's where my dad's from. And then my aunt, she also made like Cabbage Patch dolls, um, you know, like that looked like Cabbage Patch dolls, but they were black. Um, And um, they had, but except her Cabbage Patch dolls had the actual like parts. (laughs) She made like all all the parts. And then, um, 
And so like my aunts, even now, like, you know, they have aunts, they, they hook rugs and things like that. So my dad's side of the family, I feel is very um, artistic. And also where I get the collecting from, we had family albums and things like that, but honestly, they weren't discussed. It was like, this is just this person. This is just that person, you know? And it wasn't, I felt like I asked more questions, but honestly, they didn't even have the answers, you know? But I feel like that's one of the reasons which driven me to the archives is the lack of like knowledge in my own family history, knowing where I'm from. Trying to even find out my mom's history um, is difficult from the West Indies and like the Dutch archives um so it's just been very difficult i feel like the art comes from my dad's side and the collecting also comes from my dad's side but like the lack of knowledge and like growing up in like blackness and also knowing who i am as a person which might be something that i'll never find out um it's something that kind of like drives me and i guess makes me grasp on to finding onto archives and things that um that archives that i might be a part of that i can contribute to you know what i mean and, and telling that kind of story as you got older did you ever seek out or were you ever able to experience uh, like your family history on your mom's side? Did you ever visit her hometown or anything like that? I visited my mom's hometown as a child. I don't remember that at all. There are pictures of that. And then um, sometimes family members came over to visit. Honestly, they came to just shop. Um, shopping um, back back um, home um, in the uh, in the West Indies isn't very good. So they would they would always come over to shop and they would stay for like two three weeks, spend a lot of money, and then they would leave. We didn't have any very many conversations about anything. I just recently 2019 for the first well, was me and my mom took a trip to the islands and I spent three I spent two weeks there. Yeah, I spent, we spent two weeks there and had a great time. We went to the archives, talked about so much family history and things like that, but. Honestly, um, when the um, hurricane came, what was it, Hurricane Maria? Um, yeah, so. It totally devastated that area. A lot of the family, a lot of the family albums are gone. So everything is just kind of oral right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's how it was for such a long time. Right. And mm-hmm. when we look back on it, we realize how much of a blessing, like learning how to read and just archiving right. all that stuff is because right. you never know. It's really sad, though, you know, like that, that information is lost, like. Yeah. I never get it back. You know, people passing away, you'll never get that back. Um, and just like, you don't know, I don't know if I like, I don't know, I don't know who I am sometimes, you know? Yeah, I, I definitely agree and um, empathize with you. My wife is Nigerian and they have a very strong connection mm-hmm. to their, uh, like their homeland, even down to like your father's village and stuff like that. So right. something that I, um, I'm envious of is that 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 strong cultural identity and i think i think especially for black people and of course it's probably that by design we -hmm. don't understand how strong uh that cultural connection is until you develop it yourself where you get it because once Mm -hmm. you have that identity it's like no matter where you go you always feel like that something has your back Right, exactly. Yes. With yes. Black people in America, I mean, the American consciousness and identity is like very individualistic, and mm-hmm. that has definitely um, seems like only the bad things trickle down to the black community. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think that like things are changing, where we are starting to realize, you know, stepping on people just to get a dollar is not really like right for us. Uh, but at the same time, it's just difficult to try to escape a system that. We, that, that we've been built. Yeah. And that we've been affected by so much. Cause even thinking about like, I'm just thinking about like, you know, the families that were broken up, toxicness that have happened in fa- different families and how families have been broken apart. Like those, that history, those, that lineage, like it, it, some people like just forget it. I don't even know them. You don't even know who your family is anymore. Like this total linkage is just broke. 
and yeah. like that family history, like you just will never get it again. This generation, generation just gone. Yeah. I want to get back to uh, your time at the HBCU. Um, yeah. Is it right to say like overall, like you had a fun time, but it wasn't that black connection you were looking for? Yes. Like, so I had a, I had a, and I, honestly, like, I would say like, I think what I was basing my experiences off was, was off TV and what off, what off I was being told about what HBC would be like, you know, like also at that time, but this is like early, I was what, I'm a little bit older. So like, this is like around like college Hill time. And you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like that kind of time frame. And so like, um, the things that I did learn at HBCU too also is accountability. Like they had, um, you know, dress for success. Like you had to, we had to get dressed up to go to classes on certain days. Um, you know, there was a lot of things that I learned, you know, at HBCU and the teachers also, I do remember the teachers being very hands-on and caring a lot about why wasn't I coming to class? Why was I skipping? Like, you know, why did I, why was I getting in trouble? Like, you know what I mean? So yeah. like the teachers did care a lot about me. I remember that. And I remember just, it was a, it was definitely a different experience from high school. Cause I remember the teachers didn't, they were just like, whatever. You know, but I remember I remember the teachers being caring a lot about the students holding behind. Like it was almost like, you know, talking to your auntie, you know, like I felt like I did feel a responsibility, but at certain times I just didn't care. Um, it just I did not I did not use my time wisely at uh, Virginia State. And I definitely I always told myself I would go back there and, and make up that time, whether it's a class or getting um, a certificate or something. I was like, because I would love to um to have my experience over there again. Talk to me about after. Virginia State because you said that you left after a year and mm-hmm. you're talking about how you would go back but what what happened after you initially left so after I initially left um I went to my father's house and stayed with him and I worked um a lot of you know um job worked at the mall worked at Planet Fitness you know places like that and um my dad was like saying like, you know, you should, um, you know, think about getting a job in the military. He's like, what's something you'd like to do? I said, I would like to be a broadcast journalist. I like to talk, you know, I can make stories. Like, I feel like that's something I could do. So, you know, I kind of started researching that. And um, there was a, there was an ad on the internet, on monster.com that said, you could be a broadcast journalist in the army, no experience necessary, send us your resume and your reel and all that. So I sent up all night making this reel and everything like that sent it in. And then I got a call the next day that was like, come in for an interview. So I got all dressed up, go to the interview, this location. And it turns out that it's a, um, it's in Largo in, um, in uh, PG Plaza. And it's, um, it's for a recruiting station. And the guy's name was um, Sergeant Michael Jackson. And he uh, ended up recruiting me to be a broadcast journalist. And how it happened was, um, that ad, what it was, you had to have a def- different prerequisites. And if you, once you pass basic training, you pass the voice test, you pass all these different things, then you could be a broadcast journalist. And that also, if you think about it also was, um, you know, in itself racist, because I had to change the way I talked. Um, they, the way I said on, I used to say on, not on, um, a lot of different things I used to say, um, they changed um, the way I talked. So um, that was how I ended up becoming a broadcast journalist in the military. You were in the military for seven years, you said? Yes. Okay. What was that entire experience like? My, it was a great experience. I loved, honestly, being outside of uniform than being in uniform. Um, I met a lot of great people and a lot of met a lot of problematic people. Um, There are, it's honestly, I've considered the military like the biggest gang that there is. And I was definitely a part of it. 
Um, they are, they run rampant when they go to other states, I mean, other countries. Um, when I was in Korea, we, I was a broadcast journalist. That's what we called ourselves. But to be honest, we were making command information. So we were making propaganda. And so when I was in Korea, I had a radio show. Um, we did news stories. We also made commercials and things like that. And our, we would have command information, like a newsletter, I mean, a, you know, a bulletin will come out that would say, these are the topics that we need soldiers to know about, which is don't rape people, don't get drunk, you know, don't get drunk and then steal a vehicle and, you know, kill people like, you know, and these are things that soldiers are doing all the time over in Korea, but you wouldn't hear about it, it would be handled internally or, you know, on base. And so like, that was just, that was just some of the things I didn't like about the military, but it also did, did teach me how to um, talk to people and to build community. Um, and also it taught me everything I know about, about broadcasting and storytelling. And it actually got me into photography. And that's what um, really started snowballing me and my skills in art. And I was like, I can really do this. And so that's kind of like how everything started for me in art and someone really holding my skills that came from the military. What was it like when you were discharged from the military. Did you have a difficult time or was it an easy time adjusting back to civilian life? Uh, I'm, I'm a not perfectionist, but I'm, I've become very prepared for things. So like I do my research first. Yeah. So um, it wasn't, it really, I had a job before I got in the military and I, I get, would like backtrack two things. I want to say two more things about the military. We'll come back to that part. Sure. The military, there were instances of like, you know, racism as well in military. I did have a great time in basic training, but there was this one incident. I remember I had curly, I have curly hair and I had, you know, you braiding you know, girls are, everybody was braiding their hair halfway and then had a back poof in the yeah. back. Cause you can't have any designs. Only design you can have is straight back. It's either got to go all the way back or it can go halfway back. And, um, so all the girls were doing their hair one day and um, we have, were standing in line for the chow hall and this sergeant walks up behind me and he was like, you need to fix that nappy mess on your head. And I was like, and I like started shaking. I was crying. I was like, yes, sir. I didn't know what to say. All you can say is yes, sergeant. No, sergeant. That's all you can say. So I was, that's what I said. Say yes, sergeant, whatever. So my drill sergeant saw me and I was like kind of crying. I, mean, I was crying. I was upset in my other battle buddy who was black was like relax relax you know and the guy we thought I always I thought he was racist my drill sergeant he looked just like Stone Cold Steve Austin I just thought he was racist and he was like what's wrong with you and I told him what happened he told me go back in line don't worry about it and later that evening he called me into the, his office and that sergeant was there and that man apologized to me about how he was wrong and how that was racist and that he knew you know would never do that again and that was the end of that and so that was one of my experiences you know in the military of seeing of um I'm seeing um, things being handled properly. That didn't always happen, but it did. And then the reason why I got out of the military is because I ended up um, getting diagnosed with MS in 2011. Oh, wow. So it kind of, that's what really kind of, I wasn't able to like walk for a, a little while. So I got out and I think I, tr I tried to stay in, say so I got 2013. I tried to make it last like another year, two years, but I couldn't, um, you know, really keep, you know, be as active as I wanted to be. And I hadn't had it, you know, I couldn't manage it. I wasn't managing it well. So that's the reason why I got out. And so before I got out though, they do have training and things like that to help you transition, you know, helping you build your resume. I took a few, I took some classes like boot camps to get your resume together and they helped me, you know, research some jobs. So before I got out, I did have a job. Um, I got, I got a job at voice of America in, in Los Angeles as a, as a audio visual production specialist, basically doing the same thing I was doing there, making news stories, um, controlling, you know, the control room and things like that. So we would have 
people come in to the studio. Mostly, most people who used it um, was the Persian News Network. Um, they would, they had a lot of guests that came in and I would operate the control room. They would tell me, you know, a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right. Sometimes I would do, you know, news stories of my own as well. Um, but yeah, there were instances of, 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 of racism. One specifically was when, um, was during the, what is it? The Oscars. Um, we were covering the Oscars and um, this guy talked to me like he was like, go over here and do this. Like I said that now, like, did you hear me? Like I lost it. Like I lost it. Cussed him out in front of everybody. I told him, I was like, I don't know who the F you think you're talking to, but I'm not the one. And we were, this is over the, the intercom was open. I, I left. Like this is literally in the middle of the Oscar. I just left. I said, like, I don't care. I said, like, I'm over it. So, and there are instances like that too. My job, um, no one ever came in. I was always there by myself. Um, you know, none of my white, none of my white coworkers came in. At first I thought I was like going to be able to do, like I was doing news stories by myself. Um, I was also a broadcaster, but then I found out I had to like earn that right to be a broadcaster again after I had a whole new show and won hella awards in the, in the army. And that's the whole reason why they hired me. I had to take another voice test. I had to be, um, every time I voice something that had to be edited. And I mean like, okay, everybody says things differently, but you know what the word is. Like, I'm not, you it's not like in, intelligible, you know what I'm saying? So it was always a lot of nitpicking on my voice and nitpicking on the way I talk. That's how it is. You know how it is in journalism. But then I would say like, but you know, this story and if it, in most of my stories, all of my stories, I specifically made sure that they were black, of course, um, or my subjects were black um, because they didn't, they never had any, um, they weren't having a very many stories about people of color, specifically black people. So that's what I primarily focused on. And so I felt like my tone, my delivery, and like the way I spoke, spoke to my community. I didn't have to speak in this proper tone all the time, I guess that they, that they wanted. It's like, they want you to strip out that regional dialect or, um, I mean, honestly, in some cases, like it kind of works in reverse. I was trying to um, do like news and traffic for a station in Baltimore. They had told me like, you just don't have like the right sound for the station. Baltimore is a number 26 media market. And I've been working in DC, which is number five or six, depending on the year. So I'm, I clearly know what I'm doing, but like, I, I get what you're saying but you just can't come right out and say it. And I understand. So we don't need to, uh, we don't need to continue this like charade any further. So I definitely know where you're coming from. Once you finished at Voice of America, when did you end up going to um, MICA? And what was your, I guess, though, now that I'm listening to you and you're right, you have lived many lives. Um, <laughs> what was your inspiration for launching the uh, MICA, I mean, the Maryland Institute Black Archives? Okay, so that's another that's another long story. Okay, so I've been in school. I don't know. I mean, you know, I said I like I was in school for all those years, and then I, you know, I want to take a break. Well, the whole time I was in the military, I was always taking online classes. And when I when I went to Voice of America, I was still taking classes through the GI Bill. Um, at the time, I was in a relationship, and so he was living in Florida. So I went to Florida to live with him and, you know, start doing art, full, start pursuing art full time. Because when I was in L.A., I really started like, honestly, I was doing more photography and shooting on the weekends. And I was doing that at my job. I'll be at my job editing photos and not really working on my stuff, you know. <laughs> so um, I, I went to pursue a relationship, but then also to pursue my career in art. And so I ended up going to Florida, Pensacola, Florida, which is where he was stationed. And so um, I went to Pensacola State um, College there that was a different experience. Um, but it was, 
interesting. Um, but, um, you know, I got a, a associate's degree from there and then, you know, I transferred to Micah, but I always, I've always known about Micah. And I, as soon as I started getting into art, I know I wanted to come back home and be with my family. My brother was having uh, my, my son, my nephew. And so I wanted to be back close. I wanted to come closer to home. We were, he's also from Baltimore, my, um, partner at the time. And so we wanted to come back. So I, I, I'd researched Micah. I actually even visited the college, um, I think classes were, you know, in session at the time. It was like in October. So I saw a lot of um, black, I actually saw a lot of black people working on campus. I saw a lot of campus safety. I saw um, people in the offices, um, you know, Colette VZ Colors was the chair of the department at the time. Baltimore, you know, 60, 70% black. So, you know, I'm like, okay, you know, this is, this, the school might look, might be a more diverse than, um, you know, of course, you know, the field of art and design is. So, you know, I really wanted to come to Micah. So that was the only school that I applied to. You know, I, I talked to, um, I've written, honestly, some of the biggest, you know, at the, and also coming to Micah, the brand. Thinking about like why I wanted to come to art and design school, looking at the things I wanted to do in photography and look like where I wanted to go in life. Of course, everybody wanted to be famous. I'm not gonna lie. That's why I wanted to come to Micah. It's like, you know, I wanna be a famous artist. Like, of course, everybody, yeah. everybody wanted to be. That's why I came, I'm, I'm not gonna lie. And so like, I reached out to Deb, I reached out to all my, you know, artists, photographers that I love, Deb Willis, you know, I appreciate all the people who said, yes, apply to Micah, you know, your portfolio, it needs work, but like, you got something there, you know? So that's why I, you know, I came to Micah, whatever, that's why I came for the brand and, and also, you know, to be closer to home. But then, you know, when I got here um, and I was in the classroom, I'm like realizing that like, it didn't look exactly how I thought it looked when I came to visit that day. That's just the staffing. When I came to the classroom, I started wanting to know more, like, why does, where is the community? Where are the black students at? Where are the black people that I saw on the flyers and things like that, you know? So yeah. I started going to, to the black student union meetings. I started like connecting with other students. And that's how, you know, that's how I started like learning more about like Micah's history, not Micah's history, but Micah's environment, the environment at the college. They um, ended up coming to Micah um, in my first semester and we were starting to work on our, th our junior thesis projects. And I was like, I don't have any ideas, but I was taking so many classes at the time because I needed to finish my degree in a certain amount of time with the amount of time I had left on the GI Bill. So I was maxed out on classes. I did not have time to be running around and doing a bunch of stuff that everybody else was doing. And so I need to stay close to campus. So he said, well, stay close, stay local, think about your community. So I said, okay, well, shit, what's Micah's Black History? I don't know it. Do you know it? Nobody could tell me. BSU couldn't even tell me. So I said, well, I'll just, I'll go to the library and ask. I went to the library. They said that Micah had an autobiography. It's 300 pages. You should read it. Okay. Got the book, got to page 91. And there was a page about uh, segregation at the Institute, one page. And it talked about how Micah had um, denied Black students from coming there. And I was like, this is interesting. Okay. I'll keep reading. There was no more. I was like, what? It was like, just kind of like white. I was like, what happened? Where are the rest of the, where's the rest of the things at? So I was like, let me read the rest of the book. Read the rest of the book. It's like barely any mention of black people, period. Not that incident. There was like a few instances of, you know, a speckle of black people here or there, but that was it. I said, okay, I know for a fact that between um, when they stopped saying black students come to college in, in 1895 and 1954 when schools were desegregated, at least one person tried to come. You can't tell me that nobody tried to come here. So that's, that's where it all started. I just started researching. And honestly, the first night that I went and looked, it hit. And I was like, wow. I was like, there is so much more to this story that they did not tell. Mm -hmm. And so I just started collecting and I just started um, researching. I started talking to my classes and started telling people, but you know, it wasn't well received in my class because my classmates, you know, they were like, oh, that's cool. You know, 
but you know, what are you going to do with that? I'm like, tell everybody, keep researching and tell everybody. So that's kind of like how MIBA, you know, started was um, understanding why Micah looked the way it did, especially when um, Baltimore was predominantly black and knowing that there were so many black artists who had came out of Micah and had, you know, Amy Cheryl was just starting to make, you know, was just starting to come up, name was coming up and a lot more other, you know, other black artists from Micah coming up. So I just couldn't understand we just only knew about a certain few, but there had to be people who came before us. That's that's kind of where I wanted to start. When you were doing the the archival project, and and did that become your uh, your thesis for your MFA? My uh, undergraduate thesis is my graduate thesis, sort of speak. It was, but I revamped it, you know, knowing the knowledge that I did now, because honestly. Everything I did in undergrad was just me making it up. No training, no art. You know, I didn't know nothing. Everything I knew was based off of internships, what people were telling me. I just went with my gut, like, okay, I'm going to try to take a picture of all the Black, the whole Black community on campus. That's how the portrait started. Okay, I'll archive and I'll save all this stuff. Okay, now that I got to save, well, maybe I should share it. And then, like, people should be able to look at it. And they were like, okay, so I got to make an archive, a database. Okay, I'm going to do that, you know? oh, there are these specific dates that are, you know, that could be remembrance that are days that just happened. It just happened the other day. Oh, this would be great people to know. They would connect it and make it more real, you know, for people. So that's how the public programming started. You know, I was just, whatever came to my head, I just started, you know, I just started doing what, what came to the gut. So when I got to the MFA program, the things that I was working on intuitively, um, I was able to get more guidance. So I'm not saying I couldn't get that in undergrad, but, you know, undergrad was, it was, um, I guess it was, they were they were helping was more so for my particular craft, which was photography, and also for um, teaching students how to work long term on a project instead of just stop and go kind of thing. But I needed more nurturing that I got from the MFA program and from my relationships. When you were working on your thesis during your MFA, and just basically, really, once you started this archival journey, um, did you? have like a moral quandary of still attending Micah while going through this archival project? You're like, I'm actively going to an institution that would not have let me in. Did that like fuck with your head a little bit? Yes, all the time. And also because because I was like, I don't want to be a sellout. I don't want to harm the community. Like there were times I was asking people about things that um, I found out and then they, they we would talk about it, but then I would see them, they would get visibly upset and shaken. Do I want to share them and have them exposed like that? Allowing Micah to tell our stories. How can they support me? Micah's still gaining things, is gaining from me. Like me doing the project and them admitting that they're racist, help them out, you know? Um, also them, them saying about this project and me talking about and pointing out these instances of great black people who have done things. And, you know, not just the negative, but I try to find the positive. Like it's really hard to find the positive, but I try my best to no matter what, even if someone got denied, I'm trying to find out what did they do and go, what did they go on to do? Like, that's not going to be the end of So they got denied. Nah, that's not what they did. They went on and did X, Y, and Z. So like, it's, it's always like a, it's to me, it's like a double-edged sword because like, um, I feel like sometimes like <laughs> I told my friend one time, I was like, almost like a, like, I'm like, not like a, like one of those like codependent kind of like abusive relationships sometimes like you know I'm doing like this the work and it was like oh the work is so good and it's great but then sometimes like you know I don't get I don't feel like I'm treated right like I said macroaggressions happen against me at the college it's just been it's just you know something you don't want to feel like a sellout like you know I'm, am I supposed to give Micah the archive like they're going to tell our story like cooperate how much are we working together with this do they own it they have copyright because some of the things that I've gotten from come from their archive you know what I mean so there's always always like a double-edged sword and like morally it's difficult 
Um, but I know what I tell myself, I said like, you know, black person going to a white institution, um, am I helping them more them more than I'm helping myself and my community? And I say, I think I'm helping my community more because no matter what we say yes to PWI, and I definitely think that HBCUs needs to get need to get the funding and we want need it at HBCU, our institution. Um, I'm trying to start one or be a part of anyone that that's going to happen. Um, but I think like black students, black people are going to come to the college not to become a famous artist. That's not that was my original goal, not my goal anymore. Um, whatever happens, happens. But I'm rich. I'm so much more richer and, and I, like, like I'm so much more richer in my soul and like what's happened with this project than I could ever be anything that's happened um, any, any amount of money, like this is not, I'm, I'm not making any money off this, you know, like everything that every, all the money that I'm making, I'm trying to give it to black artists and black students who come to Michael or black artists affiliated with Baltimore. It's a, it's a project that's near and dear to my heart. And so like I said, I'm part of that community as part of my family, but I'm not trying to hard, hurt us. And I want us to be supported. I want to make sure we're comp compensated, but I'm not trying to exploit us in, in any type of way. And a lot of times, you know, we talk, I, I, I always think about when we when I hear but people talking about other archives and it being negative and things like that. I'm trying to make ours I'm trying to make it positive like yes it may have started out negative and you know things like that but I, I do not want anyone's story to end in a negative light I'm trying to find the positive in every um, artist that I find because um, I do not want our community to be exploited or harmed in any type of way because that was nothing that that gets on my nerves every time we hear a black story it's always pain where is the joy you know yeah absolutely and I think that that shows like that, that speaks to your integrity as a journalist, because it's really just, it's so much easier to end the story on a negative note, or yeah. obviously with stories of the black experience, it's just so much easier to like cash in on that poverty porn or trauma porn or whatever right. uh, we want to call it. So I really do. Um, I mean, I, I appreciate that. Can you talk to me about Black Ives? Black Ives is a spinoff and it's really going to be like the, the umbrella that holds the Maryland Institute Black Archives. But it's a, the name is a spinoff from our original um, exhibition um, that happened with MIBA. But it's a combination of black, black, um, blackness and, of course, the archives. And so it's like Black Ives. And so with it, what it is, is it's a cultural research firm uncovering, preserving and celebrating black history in art and design. And I'm hoping to do this through institutions specifically. I'm thinking about. ACAD institutions, which is the Association of Independent Colleges of Art and Design, which is what Micah is a part of. That would be like one of my foundations to start with. And Micah actually started that organization that helped start that group. But mm -hmm. those colleges are some of the oldest colleges, are the oldest colleges um, in art and design. And I have started researching some of them. They do have a similar track record as Micah, but is that anywhere in their college's history? No. So I want to start researching that work because um, black students are going to come to art and design institutions, no matter what, you know, we do more people are going to come to the college and they need to know that we have a place here and that we have done great things and great work. And that's just not just for us, but that's just for the, um, the students in general, people coming from all over the world. Um, you know, and we want, I want to know about them just as much as I want them to know about us, to be honest with you. So, um, if I can start that, um, at different institutions, that's what I want to do through black eyes. So I want to assist communities, institutions with identifying these gaps, with helping them with the researching, not just me. I don't want to be the person doing it. I want to make sure this is what the community also wants and to finding a way to make that information accessible if that's what they want to do. Cause I've been also thinking about and going to a lot of different panels and talking about archives that are internal and aren't being shared and that they maybe just be 
be for like indigenous communities want to keep their information within their community. So sometimes maybe things aren't always accessible. And then thinking about how that form and how it shows up, whether that's an exhibition, it can be an artwork, it can be an archive, et cetera. Um, I'm still an artist and I'm hoping to work more um, interdisciplinary, um, multidisciplinary, but right now I'm, you know, um, you know mostly based in photography and, and archiving and collecting. Um, but I really want to start, you know, creating more awareness, interest and activity in the black community, but also whatever um, community they are associated with the larger community that they are with. And so MIBA is kind of like that prototype. So, you know, if you look at MIBA, you see it has like an archive, it has like public programming, has an exhibition, you know, I made a couple uh, facsimile pieces, you know. So I just kind of like played out all my ideas, but MIBA is kind of my prototype um, that we're working with. And I'm hoping to grow that, those different archives or, or expand um, after the first year after grad school. I just want to kind of get my footing and get MIBA more, you know, stable um, and sustainable, should I say, because we do need funding if anybody's out there, um, you know, for the, for the long haul. As somebody who has been on the inside, and I think that you have a very unique experience and viewpoint, what do you think is in Baltimore's future as far as the Black arts scene? I think the black art scene in, in Baltimore, I know, and I think I know it's growing, expanding, and it is being preserved right now for future generations. There are so many different um, communities within Baltimore that are very active, um, that are you know preserving Baltimore's black art scene as it's happening now. And the other thing that I've also noticed is that people are collecting stories now, not waiting for, you know, people are like old and, you know, maybe about to, you know, um, pass on, but they're getting younger people now, you know, like Jarrell Gibbs and, you know, Monica Ikigu. So we're thinking of like a lot more artists now people are um, starting to archive and the Baltimore's art scene is growing. Like, you know, we see Baltimore more on the big screen now. I'm seeing, we have a movie being filmed here right now, you know? So like, do you know about that? I do not. Uh, it's called... The Spook Who Sat Next to the Door. Yeah, I'm, I've heard of that title before. So they're filming like an adaptation in Baltimore? Yes, they're filming a series through Fox Empire. Like, I think it's with, um, who did um, Empire? What's that dude? Lee, da Lee Daniels? Yeah. yeah, I think it's Lee Daniels. He, yep, mm -hmm. right here, uh, Mount Vernon, where the, mm -hmm. right there. And all on um, all on Charles Street towards um, where, the, where they sell the wine, where all the restaurants are, where yeah. it goes down going back towards Micah, going towards UB. Oh, okay. And, there, and then there's, an, yeah, look it up online and you'll see they're filming in some kind of building downtown. Um, but yeah, Baltimore, you know, TT the artist, she, she um, was talking about Baltimore. Um, she has that movie on um, Netflix. Um, Baltimore art scene is growing and expanding. And like, um, I did just, but I've known, and it's in, in the, in the generation that we're here, the generation that's here now, and also the past generation, because more people are like myself who are looking into the past through archives are bringing, um, those unsung heroes, like to the forefront. So it's not just people that you, that you, that, you know, it's going to be more people. So it's growing and expanding. And I hope everybody's ready because Baltimore is going to take over. I think, and also Baltimore is a great location. It's just, a, it's just a beautiful place. I love Baltimore so much. And I also, I, I was a part of um, Baltimore College Child Leadership. Are you, you know about that program? Nope. Leadership is, um, it's Baltimore. Well, no, it's not. It's called College Town. College Town is a program. I think it happens. It's all over the country, but it, it helps um, connect different colleges, different students in different colleges in like a city. So, and you can also help you take colleges. So kind of like how like 
students at Mike can take class at John Hopkins. You can even take some classes at Morgan and they have a bus that drives around. It's supposed to connect you up and make friends. Mm -hmm. But I took um, this uh, college town leadership class, which takes two, like, takes like two or three students from every college, brings them together. Everybody talks about their dreams and things that they'd like to do. And my main, this is when I first got to Micah, my goal was to hopefully one day start a museum. And I think that that program really helped me see how rich and how, um, um, how much, how, what's the word I'm looking for? How rich and how prosperous you can be in Baltimore. There were so many things that people were interested in and everything. I was like, did I even have that in Baltimore? Like, does anybody even Baltimore even care? Is that like a need that Baltimore has? And doing a little research, you would find out, like, I didn't know anything about food deserts. This one girl, she was so interested in like um, making a garden or something like that, but just looking at the different needs and different communities and things that are happening in Baltimore, but then also inside the outside world, like Baltimore is a great place to, to give back. Um, I think so. And it's also a place that is growing. And I think that there are a lot of artists here who are doing a lot of work um, in the community, but they are doing that work um, genuinely and not using the community. At least sure, artists sure. that I know, should I say, at least artists that I know, because I do know there are a lot of artists who come in, parachute in, and then, you know, do something and get whatever then leave. But um, from what I've seen, there's a lot of care in the community. People are staying in Baltimore and um, are, are growing here and the black art scene is growing. We're going to start wrapping up here. And I okay. always ask my uh, guests these last two questions. First, uh, what's coming up next for you? And then second, how can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more or uh, make contact with you about Black Ives? Yeah. So um, for my thesis is finished. We gra I graduated um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, so I'm congratulations, really congratulations. Thank you. I'm so happy about that. Um, it's, I'm just now... Getting, I'm starting to get that. I'm not a student anymore. I'm a professional now, like, you know, out of my, into my system. Um, but um, the goal is to finish the archive. The archive was not um, completely finished by the time um, thesis was over. Um, I wanted to make it more robust. I didn't want to just put up a, a database. Um, so over the summer, I'm working with um, several people to uh, make the archive more robust, maybe have some exhibitions, some blog posts, something up there, um, more for people to contextualize the information a lot more for the viewers um, while we work on growing it. Um, also, like I said, sustaining MIBA. So if we have any angel donors out there, um, I we really need um, some funding um, to help keep the staff on board. I would love to, for MIBA, have a fellowship program, not with necessarily MICA, but with students um, in general, maybe journalism students, maybe students who are um, artists, who also artist researchers who want to do that work. But I would love to um, have a... Um, a fellowship or a scholarship for artists um, to work and um, help um, continue to build the archive, as well as making that uh, I'm writing a book for about the archive in 2026 for Micah's Bicentennial. Um, and then last but not least, of course, Growing Black Eyes. Black Eyes was started, the LLC was started um, uh, early in 2020. Um, it's in its infancy. Um, so right now, once I get in my BA up and rolling, then I'll be able to um, you know, uh, advertise and um, get Black Ives out there more through um, contacting, you know, different um, art institutions, HBCUs, um, any different, um, you know, local organizations. And then lastly, you said, how can people um, get in touch with me? Um, you can follow me at, at MIBA.online or at underscore Black Ives on um, Instagram. Those are like my most active sites. We do have a Facebook page, um, but working on getting all that together. I need a new social media manager. So we'll be advertising for that. If anybody's looking for a job, um, that'll be coming up too. Um, and also you can always email me. Right now I'm going to say email me on my Micah, old Micah account. I'm always going to be checking that, but it's dmoses at micah.edu. And before I get out of here, can I just 
lastly say thank you to you, Jason, for inviting me here. Um, it's been an honor to speak with you and be um, on your podcast. Uh, you've been running it for a very long time. We've had some wonderful guests on here. So I'm honored to be in the lineup of those guests and to be speaking with you today. And I also want to thank uh, my community, not just at MICA, but in Baltimore and the people who have supported me through the years in the military, in Virginia State, um, and all the different lives that I've lived and anyone who I've um, interacted with. I greatly appreciate it. I learned from everybody, anybody how I've ever met. But I wouldn't be here without my community. Um, this is for them, for us. It's been a blessing and it's truly a blessing to, to have the project and to um, to tell the stories of Black artists and of, of Black artists in Baltimore and Baltimore. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dion Moses, you, again, you were not lying when you said you lived multiple lives. I feel like you've taken me on a journey, but I, I appreciate you and really being uh, patient and flexible with um, my schedule. It's been pretty, pretty busy. Um, but I, I really do appreciate the opportunity to um, to talk with you. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Of course, anytime. Anytime.